I did convince the administrators we should leave the room and go talk to the other groups. And we heard from the facilitators that they've been running this exercise for a long time. And that was the first time they've ever seen the administrators leave the room. Breaking boundaries and taking risk is hard for all of us. Sarah from UMass Amherst learned from her experience to inspire us to find the opportunities where we can make a difference. Welcome to the Find Your Path podcast. My name is Dave Acker. I've always been interested in how life and career intersect. As an innovator, entrepreneur, and educator, there's always challenges to our journey to define success. We plan to talk to everyday people to learn from their experiences so we can set our own paths. Today we're joined with Sarah Hutton, the Interim Dean of the University of Massachusetts Amherst Libraries. She's a researcher, author, and faculty member. Her years of experience and guidance will help us bring this story together of how we all can find our path. Welcome, Sarah, to this podcast. Thanks so much for agreeing to join us. Thank you. Thank you for extending the invitation. Great to be here. <laughs> That's fair. So tell me about your role and how did you get here? I know that's a big question. That is a big question. Gosh, the lead up. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll start from the present and then kind of work backwards. Um, so I'm currently serving as the in an interim um, Dean of Libraries role uh, at UMass Amherst, as you mentioned. Um, it's a, an, an R1, it's like a you know, top tier research intensive university, three library locations, um, I oversee a staff of around 150 employees. Um, gosh, well, it depends over the past couple of years, our levels of <laughs> life is interrupt us. Well, that's so another big part of my life, um, aside from my job is I have two young children, um, five and a seven-year-old, um, Oleander and Viola respectively. And that was Oli that just barged in here um he's just saying hi he wants to see he's his just mom saying hi he's just saying hi no it's 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 lovely i love the bargains it's those those kinds of you know surprising moments that <laughs> kind of break up the day i guess um so or da, 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 da. yeah so so, you know, so, yeah. so your current role is yeah. this library with lots of different people doing lots yeah. of different things yeah what's a challenge that you find that you deal with in your day-to-day -day right now? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, um, it's a loaded question. Yeah, it sure is. But I mean, it's, it's not, my challenges are not unique. Um, I think, you know, I've been working in this library before I was appointed to my interim dean position and that was in August of 2021. Um, I had been leading an area in the libraries that was dedicated to supporting, you know, public facing services. And we all went through the pandemic together and it was incredibly challenging. Um, there was, you know, a lot of stress, anxiety, um, fear, and a lot of coordination with, you know, environmental health and safety and, you know, different campus planners. It was just, it was this entirely different and new landscape of the same job I'd already been doing. So it was very interesting to transition into that quite suddenly. And, you know, I'd already had a leadership role in the organization and then I took on one that was kind of a new form. And so, I think one of the reasons why I then, you know, just 
<laughs> I won't go through the, I guess, the whole process of how um, interim deans are appointed, but I, you know, was nominated and, and asked to do the job. And I felt like that, you know, navigating through that tumult really prepared me for that. And you still will never be prepared for um, the, you know, um, that uncertainty that you're going to see, whether you're navigating the tail end of a pandemic or the uncertain future of higher education or, you know, dealing with members of the public um, or, or, or any of that, um, just navigating life in general. And so, like, I would say one of my big challenges um, <clears throat> is people. <laughs> I think I mean, really, it's it's true people, human, humans, um, working with humans are the most delightful and unpredictable part of my job and have been of any job I've ever had because you can't, you can't control um, how people think, how they interact with you. No matter what you do, you can try your best. And especially in navigating this very strange space at the tail end of this pandemic, or maybe it's the start of a new one, I don't know. Hopefully not. Um, Hopefully not, knock on wood. Um, but you know, you have, you have, uh, you know, you're, you're leading people in leadership positions are, you know, going through the same stress and panic and uncertainty and are also leading and providing, trying to provide guidance and stability for an entire organization. That's really hard. It's it really hard. I mean, to talk about making space and taking space and it's, you know, you you put in so much extra effort to take and make space for your organization, and then what does that leave for you? It's like how, how you can't back up that far from what you're doing, you know? Right, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's that's been the biggest challenge currently. I mean, so do you find yourself having to do to-do lists or other mm -hmm. things in order to keep keep yourself focused? To keep myself focused, well, so. There are a lot of different ways in which I orchestrate my own work, um, in my own research, in my, you know, in my doctoral research, my own personal research, in my own work, in my home life. Like I'm managing spinning. There are many plates spinning, right? Right. Um, and so, like, I will use anything that is available to capture the moment. Anything from a napkin to a very painfully detailed Trello board that articulates a collaborative project to, um, you know, any random piece of software that somebody throws at me. It's really whatever captures the work of the moment and is, um, you know, uh, a light lift to use and a low point of entry for when you want to pick it back up again. Um, I have, a, I'll give an example of um, how work within the libraries is orchestrated. We have um, this, you know, governance council, leadership council that really serves as the main body of communication. And we meet every week. This is something that was formed during the pandemic. And it was really to, um, it's all the department heads and the administrative leaders, basically the dean's cabinet. We meet every week to touch base on what's going on. You know, what's wow, going on with facilities, really what's going on with the people, all this. And we have orchestrated this communication system where, you know, we manage everything. We're a, um, 
uh, a Microsoft 360 shop. And so we have OneDrive and Exchange and all that, on Outlook and all that jazz. Right. And so we we maintain notes from these meetings and share them with the st- with all of the staff and libraries to be like, this is what happened, you know, and. Well, that's great. It's really transparent. It is. It is. And <clears throat> and also, I mean, one of the things that I think, um, you know, we've been really successful at together over the past, you know, nine months during my appointment is this communication structure. Mm-hmm. And it serves to organize my work because I have this ecosystem of documentation that stretches between my one-on-one direct reports when I meet with certain groups and this leadership council agenda or my weekly emails out to all the library system capture the updates. Like I always have them open. I'm like, this is what I need to send out this week. Um, And that's really what helps to organize and drive the work when you have so many different pieces just like flying all over the place, really unpredictable. I can't even. Yes. <laughs> well, that's great. Now, yeah. did you have background in before this in either college or other positions mm-hmm. help to drive you this transparent culture that you've developed? Mm. Um, well, my foundational degree uh, undergraduate is in counseling. Um, and I had a dual minor in psychology and art. My intent was to become an arts therapist. Um, that's really the <laughs> an art therapist. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, at the time, you know, I'm about a bazillion years old, and so this was back in um, when Leslie University was still Leslie College, mm-hmm. and they had you know three majors really, and um, it was one of the only three colleges on the East Coast um, that offered arts therapy as a specialization as a track, and the reason why I went in that direction. Um, and, you know, I mentioned this too, because I think it's important to, to mention, like, this is where my maker roots come from too, right. is that all I wanted to do was go to art school. That's all I wanted to do is do, you know, studio art programs to become an artist. Like I just love building, painting, everything. And I was in like, you know, gifted art programs and whatnot, like when I was a kid, but I, I grew up in rural Maine. There wasn't a lot available pre-internet there. Right. And my family didn't have, you know, we were working class and have a lot of money. And my dad had come from a family of factory workers. And when it came time for me to look for colleges, he was like, absolutely not. There's no way you're going to art school because you can't make any money. (laughs) You really can't. And so he, I remember that like the one and only um, college visit we did was to RIT because he was like, you can do, you can do graphic design. I was also like a on the math team and all this stuff too, because I, you know, I've got a, um, I guess like the an, an engineer's predisposition, I guess in that sense. <laughs> of, you know, you should go to an institute for tech. You need to do something to make money. Um, and art therapy was kind of the compromise because I was like, mm-hmm. well, I could get a job as a psychologist and make money while also doing studio art, and um, that's what led to that kind of direction. And I think that you know, again, that foundational degree. I haven't, you know, I've got other degrees I've gotten over the years and other experiences, but I do really feel like that foundational degree speaks so much to your disposition and like what kind of lays the groundwork from which you draw in, in how you approach um, the rest of your work. Uh, At least that's what I found for myself because it's always been, you know, very human centered for me, um, very human centered, very creative. Um, and that, you know, dovetails into human-centered design and an empathy-based approach in 
all of my leadership work um, and in my teaching. And that wasn't something that I intentionally set out to do. It's just, <laughs> that's how it, you know, kind of like looking back now, I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And it, and honestly, I hear that more when people reflect back to me, like, oh, this is what you do. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I do, you know, yeah, I do teach like human centered to, yeah, you know. Um, so it's, um, I think that that, you know, there was that foundational degree. And then um, basically, like I wanted, to, you know, I wanted to be a therapist and, and help. I've always been attracted to the populations that are kind of like the gap populations that nobody, mm -hmm. really, you know, because that's the greatest need, right? Oh, it's a big need. Yeah, yeah. And um, so I did crisis counseling um, with adolescent girls. And I did, and, you know, these girls were in some pretty dire circumstances. And I knew then and I know now that, like, I was way too young to be engaging in that intensive kind of work. And so I needed to step back and... I literally, after I finished my undergrad, I've been interning at this residential facility as a crisis counselor. I was like, I'm going to take a year and work in a job that is just like, whatever, right. <laughs> to kind of recalibrate, you know, because a lot of people like there are these structured gap years. I think that taking that space in, is incredibly important. Um, so you took I, a structured gap year and what'd you do? I took a structured gap year. Well, and and to be clear, it wasn't one of those, like I did a program or traveled abroad or I was really poor living in Boston with like 20 other people on minimum wage. And I was a so Wait, you had 20 other people in the same house? Not in this, well, okay, not 20 <laughs> other people in the same house. Although I will tell you, I lived in an old Victorian in, um, in Brighton. No, Ar there was the one in Arlington. It had like okay. 15 people in it because it was a three-story and it right. was like, a duplex and it's like postdocs recent yeah, grads and they're like we can't afford to live in boston you know it's not a living wage right and we all kind of we're okay with each other and <laughs> we're just gonna, yeah <laughs> no it's fine a gap year doing that sounds yeah. fun what'd you do yeah well so i i worked in a music store i was okay. a buyer in a music store in a used record store in, in downtown boston um, because I have, I have, you know, a surprisingly extensive knowledge of music and production. And, and so I basically like it was, you know, this was again, a million years ago when used CD, I mean, there's still stores that, you know, you can buy and sell used CDs, but not that many. was hmm? not many. Not well, there's, many. Tur there's turn it there's up. There's more vinyl now. <laughs> But there's vinyl. You can find there's vinyl. Vinyl, stores. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was some vinyl, but um, I was the per. I was one of the people where you know you'd have folks bring in stacks and stacks of CDs, and I would review them for you know content condition, um, you know production value, price it against inventory, and then like pay out to the person bringing it in. And I did that for a year, and then I was like, all right, I need to do something a bit more stimulating than this. Like I took that year, and then I was like, okay. I see what that's like, now what? Um, and so what I ended up going back to is that, so during my undergrad, um, I was, because I, like I mentioned, my family didn't have a lot of money. I was a Pell Grant recipient. I was a work study student. I had like three different part-time jobs and the work study job I had was in the library, um, was in Ludkey Library. I, as a incoming, 
first year, they reached out to me um, and asked if I would be interested in a job. I don't know what lists they were drawing from. It was, I was really thankful that they did because I wouldn't ever have thought, you know. Right. So I worked with them in their interlibrary loan department um, my first year, second year, third year. I studied abroad in okay. um, New South Wales and Australia. And when I came back that second semester, they were like, oh, we had to hire someone else to fill your position, but we'll, we'll help you get this other one over in the Office of Information Technology. And so mm -hmm. I worked in this group. Um, uh, it, it was kind of funny. It was three guys that were basically like, you know, you imagine the khaki pants and like the blue plaid shirts. And it's like, right. oh, here come the guys that are going to install your computers. And then you see this little punk girl with like <laughs> the big hair and all the piercings and stuff. And I'm like, I am here to swap out your memory card, you know, or what, I, you know, we were right. basically we're doing like this massive hardware um, replacement for the Art Institute of Boston. And I just remember being with this troop of guys and I felt like pretty cool. Like, yeah, they're letting me join their group. Anyway, I look back. That's great that. though. Yeah. That's a great experience really learning yeah. to do that. Sorry, go ahead. You were finishing looking back at that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sorry. I just, when I was thinking about what to do next, I thought about, I thought back to the library. Okay. And that's really what then started steering my path forward of, for what I was actually going to do, like what the being able to kind of architect what I was going to do with my career. That's great. And how'd your dad feel now that you got this degree? <laughs> um, he he's super duper proud of me. I mean, that's great. He, he tells about how he brags about me to um, his friends. I think that because he was a, um, you know, he came from, you know, humble beginnings and, you know, fought in Vietnam, came back, like that had its impacts, you know, and, um, and he made a really, a really nice pathway and career for himself, like, you know, kind of finding his path and navigating a lot like right. I did, you know? Yeah. Um, not so much a, a, a career as maybe a Korean, I don't know. Like you're just kind mm -hmm. of like, what is gonna be a fit? Um, and he's always been really supportive. Um, you know, I think that like, of course, like every parent is concerned about their child being able to be self-sufficient and support themselves. And especially if you come from you know, humble beginnings or, you know, a particular socioeconomic status is going to stress you out way more. Like I know right. I stress a lot about money. Oh yeah. Well, I, I know. Even exactly though I don't need about. to like, <laughs> but I know what you're talking there. about. I came from humble beginnings. I was a work study student myself mm -hmm. at Stony Brook in undergraduate admissions. And they were like, <laughs> you had to figure that out. And that mm -hmm. gives you like that grit you need to really develop and everything else. So yeah. 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 Now you talk. Oh, yeah. go ahead. No, go. Well, I, I guess just a, a quick note, because I, I do think on this a lot now that I'm raising my own kids and thinking about like how they're going to navigate their lives. It's un, it's unfortunate that that is, that is where that comes from, that, that, you know, it's like going through these very painful and framing experiences to help you learn how to navigate. Um, become, you know, self-sufficient and move forward. Like that's, um, you know, I, it's, I, I don't know, I guess it's just kind of like a side note that like, a, I, it, it's unfortunate that like that's kind of, 
the thing that gets you, you know, the result that you want for your children when you don't want to put them through that, you know? But I think you, you can do it anyway. I have a 20 year old and I can see he's still got those values that we mm -hmm. put up in him. Yeah. And you could see it coming out. Yeah. And yes, you may not have to go through that struggles that we went through, mm -hmm. but I definitely think it's that parenting and doing even what you were doing with your son right now, mm -hmm. explaining and everything else, all that's that supportive nature that mm -hmm. will make them successful. Yeah. Yeah. I know that my kids, like I often talk to them about, um, you know, like when the picky eating thing comes up being like, you know, we should be so grateful for being you know, having this food X, Y, Z and like just the, oh, mom, really? You're going to talk about this? And I, every time I do. And so, yeah, good point. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's, that's where the values are getting instilled is through oh, trust repetition. Me, <laughs> what, having a, a, a college student who lives at home, you really see mm -hmm. some of what your behaviors in and talking about that, um, my son likes to go out to lunch and mm -hmm. he'll buy something, but he won't buy a drink because mm -hmm. he knows if he brings it home, he has mm -hmm. a drink at home and that little savings will save him some of his money mm -hmm. and everything else. Yeah. And it's really made a big impact because we've tried to teach that to him and that's yeah. something he's gotten. So you see that little bit that you do well, in them. Mm -hmm. But you talked a lot about transparency and how you've done that. And that's really, you should be rewarded for that. I know a number of organizations where they aren't as transparent. Mm -hmm. Do you find mm -hmm. that transparency is something that you learned throughout your career in the libraries? Or why did you want to be so transparent to everybody in your organization? And I think it's really, mm -hmm. you should be commended for that. Mm -hmm. Well, hmm. Now that's interesting. I. You know, I really approach everything I do from that learner mindset, right? Like I never, I, I never claim I know all the answers. And in thinking about what and how I've learned in leadership over the years, I've learned a lot by experiencing or observing what you shouldn't do. And well, no, I'm serious. But it, but it's in, but but but. It, and and there's a good reason for that. Really, I mean, and it's asking those questions too, like about why, why wasn't this information shared? Like, right. and learning more about how the system works. And so I'll just give the, you know, the example, like one of the reasons why, you know, I, I'm, I have a master's degree in library and information science, and I'm an academic librarian by trade. Right. I do all this other stuff too, but like, one of the reasons I started studying, you know, doing uh, a PhD in educational policy and leadership is so I could understand how that system works and learn more about why, like how the information flowed in certain areas and why some things weren't shared over here. And then being in some of these conversations over time, like I've navigated between, um, you know, at multiple institutions, but even just within UMass, like I've been in the faculty union and elected faculty senator uh, on the executive faculty group, and then on the administrative side of the fence and on the Dean's council and in administration of the library. So I've seen like all of the different sides and I've really seen like what those pain points are. Right. And, there, and I 
also want to give a shout out like that's the experiential bit like from my years of doing this stuff but I got some a really good indication of how all of that would shake out from a leadership training program I did years ago through the Boston Library Consortium where um, this is one of the best exercises I've ever seen done and I'm not going to explain it <laughs> in the best <laughs> Or I'm just not going to be verbatim, but basically what they do is that you have a case study, right? And right. you have three different groups. You've got the staff on the ground, you've got the middle management, and then you've got the administrators. And like you, you're working, this exercise is done with a group, I think it was like 25 of us or something. Okay. You self-select into the group. I self-selected into administration because I was really curious, like, what is this going to be about? And there were like three or four of us in a room by ourselves given a case study. And then the middle managers were given the same case study, but with different information. And then the staff were same thing. And um, and then they have the people who are facilitating the exercise go from room to room to kind of observe and see how you're navigating things. And one of the things I learned from that, which was really powerful is that, so in that closed room, when I was with a group of administrators, we got this case study, it was basically like, massive budget cuts, big trouble coming, you know, like, and my instinct right away was we need to go talk to our staff about this. And everyone at the table was like, no, 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 no. We need to figure out what we're doing first. We need to, you know, it basically like you need to take the time to learn it. And, you know, because we've been trained as leaders to exude this confidence um, of like, I have all the answers, you know, you can trust in me, I am infallible. And that's not the way. And so long story short, we get to the end of this exercise and like I did convince the administrators we should leave the room and go talk to the other groups. And we heard from the facilitators that they've been running this exercise for a long time. And that was the first time they've ever seen the administrators leave the room. <laughs> and Wow, so they, they always did it in a bubble themselves. They always did it in a bubble and it was basically they were able to show us what the time lapse and time interpretation was of each one of the groups. Whereas the administrators we were like, we're moving so fast and we're doing this and we're thinking and we're thinking and we're, you know, and the staff were like, why is it taking so long to get information? And we were all in the same 20 minutes or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And so that really like, I feel like every everyone who's going into leadership position should go through an exercise like that to really get the perspective and look through the lens um, of folks who are in the dark because when you don't have that information you spin up your own narratives things starts going things start going sideways like people they get stressed they just start kind of you know things happen that's how that's what brings cultures i think to their knees is that when people are feeling in the dark and out of control they they fill the time with something else other than. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly it. When you have a culture that is not as supportive and open, that's why mm-hmm. I was interested in diving into it a few minutes mm-hmm. because I've seen cultures where the rumor mm-hmm. mill runs the organization mm-hmm. and they don't have that collaborative effort. And for mm-hmm. people who are starting out and working in their careers, they got to realize you need to figure out that right culture mm-hmm. to really embrace. Yeah. Well, in, in academia too, um, I mean, I know, you know, 
this is, well, it's not specific to academia, sure, but that, that's the area with which I'm most familiar. There definitely is something to be said for, um, for egos and for, you know, the art of information brokering that people undertake for political reasons. Like it's, it just, it happens. And it could be a holdover from the institution's culture in higher ed, like in higher education, we're forced to compete against one another for shared pools of funding when we should actually be working together toward the same goals. Oh, but that's higher ed. It, it's, that's you're it. forced to compete, mm-hmm. but at the same point, you have to collaborate with others across institutions right. to get the research dollars and everything else. Yeah. But along that same path, as we talk about higher ed and everything mm-hmm. else, have you ever had like a big failure in your career that you had to learn from? Oh, I guess we did. Oh, <laughs> so many. I don't know if I can pick just one. Um, I don't like what kind of failure are you talking? Are you talking? Well, I'm about- talking about something that like that you remember in life that you know what this is a learning experience for me mm. that I gained from when. It was something I tripped over, and it could be something minor, it could be whatever. We've all had those in our lives, so. Well, I think rather than a specific event, because I fortunately, again, knock on wood, haven't had any disastrous things occur where it was like, I started something and and lost a lot of money, or there was like a data breach, you know, like no event like that, thankfully. Um, But thematically, Again, I'm going to look at humans as the radical element. One of the things that I've had to deal with on multiple occasions throughout the course of my career at different institutions, I, I apply to a job, I get the job, and I get moved into management really quickly. And I have had at certain institutions end up, you know, being hired the same day as a person and then end up becoming their boss six months later. And navigating the challenges of going from peer to supervisor is some of the hardest work that I have experienced, at least in my, in my career. And, and it's something that, you know, I know I've made mistakes in the past of like, and I still, and I still do, I'm still navigating it. Like how much, you know, as we're trying to lean into empathy, you know, empathetic and leadership and radical candor and, and all of that. Like, how much do you share? What's too much? I feel like I've gone in the other direction because I'm kind of a private person. Right. Where it's just like, you know, kind of negotiating that. Like, I feel like the mistake that I've made in the past is that I have buttoned myself up too much to be like, this is how I've been trained to be instead of like leaning into the authenticity and just being like, okay, I'm showing up as who I am. Right. If it's not a fit, I have to be prepared to like move in another direction. Like you should never have to, some of the best career advice I've ever been given as I've thought about like, whoa, you know, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? And whatnot is ultimately you want to land in a place where you feel comfortable, where you feel like you can be yourself. Like you don't have to mask, where you don't have to, you know, put up some artifice to be a part of a culture that ultimately you don't feel like you belong to it. Um, And that's, that can be one of the the toughest journeys that you can you know take in your life is finding a place where you feel like you really belong um and that's i mean 
I think that's a big part of like successful career navigation because like, as you well know, like working with um, a lot of undergrads, like I work with so many students, they're so freaking sharp, like know so many different things, have so many transferable skills. And I'm like, I couldn't ever even predict like what you're gonna land in doing, you know? But it's that like, you know, a place where you feel like you can fit, like that is the biggest thing because you spend most of your life working, unfortunately. Oh, that's right. And that's better be a place where you feel comfortable or it's going to be. And I think you nailed it on the head there. You spend a ton of your time working and everything else. And I think this was a great conversation, Sarah. I really appreciate it. Is there any last bit of information you want to share before we wrap up for this evening? Hmm. I guess that um, I was never one of those um one of those kiddos or teens or young adults who had a strong idea about what I wanted to do and that can be really scary and um now that I am you know on the other side of middle age I can report that it's okay it's okay not to know um it's okay to be you know, to explore and would encourage that because I feel like that's the most valuable and transferable skill that anybody has to offer in any career is that curiosity, um, inquisitive nature and willingness to question what is because our world right now is is, is so different and, and ever-changing. And so that question is really gonna position people well. That's great. And that's a great thing. Sarah, thank you so much for your time. It's been interactive and exciting and I'm enjoying the whole insights and your insight and your valuable resources is really helpful. And I know it would be helpful to so many others who are going to listen to this podcast. So thank hey, you. So glad. I'm, I'm, hope, I'm hoping. You've been listening to the Find Your Path podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Dave Ecker and our career coaches. Special thanks goes out to my lovely wife, who is always supportive of all our efforts. If you have any needs for coaching and career development, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter, or our website, ourcareercoaches.com.